ridiculous in like every theoretical way possible and analytical way possible uh, in order to explain why I chose to uh, create a character that was hyper-violent, far from her humanity, was going against every single um, feminist stereotype you could find of being softness, being polite, being nice, being good looking, having a great body. But I think that organically I really need to get I needed to get it out that rage. And I don't need to morally sustain what she's doing to relate to her. I just need to feel what she feels and this is something that I feel. Hello and welcome to episode two of an invitation to destroyer. A limited chronological deep dive of the 2018 neo-noir Destroyer, written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, and directed by Karn Kasama. I'm your host, Jim Panola. During each episode, I start by reading a scene or scenes from the original script, adapting the screenplay into an immersive audio narrative with a full cast and a brand new soundtrack followed by an analysis of those scenes, simultaneously highlighting the merits of the screenplay while exploring the final cut of the film, ideally shedding light on all of the unique components that contribute to the movie, and how each of those elements fit into the greater thematic ideas of the story. This series is very much a labor of love that is completely independent and ad-free, So if you enjoy the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It allows us to reach more listeners and simply helps a great deal with visibility. If you want to go above and beyond, I have a Patreon subscription page at patreon.com slash jimpanola with no underscores, where your hard-earned dollars get you access to a wealth of bonus material, and it directly funds this podcast. Thank you so much for your consideration. One final note I'd like to make is that while this podcast will naturally contain spoilers for Destroyer, of course, my general aim is not to get too ahead of myself with the discussion of each scene as it's addressed. In other words, while I may hint at things that have yet to happen at times throughout the podcast, I want to make this series as accessible as possible for both people who have and have not seen the film or read the screenplay before for that matter so without further ado today's installment is a reading of pages 4 through 12 of the destroyer screenplay let's begin Interior, Northwest Division. Morning. Bell enters the precinct. Preoccupied, a cup of coffee to cut through the haze. Ahead, her superior, Lieutenant Oshima. You getting your mail here now? I don't get it. What? Saying, apparently you live here. I spend a lot of time here, yeah. She tries to keep moving. It works. He's unwilling to chase. Interior bullpen, moments later. From behind, we see Belle, hunched over her desk. She holds something she's found there. 
an envelope addressed to her in a handwritten scrawl. She opens it, pulls something out of it, an ink-stained hundred-dollar bill, just like the one near the body. Looks over her shoulder, room crowded with cops, thinks. Interior supply room, moments later. We close in on Belle, alone in the locked room. She stares at the marked hundred-dollar bill, very close on the bill, deeply stained. Mind moving, stress growing, near the intensity of panic. She puts the bill into an evidence bag, puts the bag in a backpack. Interior bullpen continuous. As Belle moves toward the front door, we watch her from across the room through other people. Walking across the bullpen, pace increasing, a sharp, tamped-down urgency to her movements. Exterior Northwest Division, morning. She throws the backpack into the backseat of her car, gets in. Interior, Belle's car, day. Belle drives. A voice insinuates itself. Look at that face, little dog. You're, you're hungry. We rotate slowly behind her. Find a scar at the base of her neck where a tattoo has been removed. The same location as the tattoo on the body in Echo Park. The faint remnant of the same shape. Hungry little mutt. Exterior Federal Building, day. The monumental government office building in Westwood. The Los Angeles branch of the FBI. Detective Bell. Interior Cafe, continuous. Bell sits across from a smiling Gil Lawson, 50s. An FBI lifer. In the corner of the building's almost empty cafe. My God, if I knew you were coming, I could have rustled up more of a welcome party. I only wanted to see you. Something in her voice cuts off the small talk. What's up? Silas is back. A pause. (laughs) Lawson sits back, looks at Belle. A strange, almost sad look. He's back. I know it. Somewhere in L.A. What makes you say that? Belle produces a clear sleeve containing the ink-stained bill. Lawson's demeanor shifts. Where'd you get this? I got it. Lawson looks at Belle. That's all she's giving up. Why now? Cleaning up, starting again, I don't know. Well, we've had nothing on this end. Not since it all happened. What? 17 years now. He subtly examines the bill. If this is a match, it's going to light up a lot of people up and down the hall. How did... Belle looks down. I need you to look this up for me and then forget that you did. At least for a while. I want to be sure. All right. He gets to his feet, switching gears as Belle follows him. How's Shelby? How old is she now? Sixteen. Incredible. Pause. I don't remember your kids' names. (laughs) It's okay. Come on. He puts a hand on her shoulder as he leads her toward the exit been way too long, Aaron. I know. As they walk away... I look different. I've been making these protein smoothies. 
slow motion as Bell follows Lawson past a few occupied tables. Bell seems uncomfortable. Bell's POV. The eyes of the agents seem to be on her. Lawson nods to one of them as he passes. Interior Lawson's office, continuous. Lawson's office has a commanding view of the 405 freeway. Close the door. She does so as he wakes his computer. Let's see it. Look, if this is going to jam you up with anybody... Don't do it? You don't mean that? A small smile from Belle. Fuck him. As far as I'm concerned, you're one of us. Lawson brings up a database of stolen bills. As he hunts and pecks the number in... You're lucky the numbers from that job are in the database. Bank only tracks this big shipments. This is the time we're screwed as far as that goes. As he waits for the result... How much is still out there? Three million? Four? On Bell, a non-committal shrug. She watches his face as the results come up. It's a match, yeah? He nods. He looks to Bell, who's off in her own world. Hey... Don't you tell me where you got this. Let me handle it. We can still keep it between us. I'm sorry, I can't. He looks at her for a moment. Seems to choose his words. What happened was... No, Gil. We put you and Chris there. Too green. Shit deal. You weren't ready. Bell betrays nothing. You know how most of these leads go... This has been ice cold for a long time. Toby's in Chino. The rest, they're all gone. You want to go down that hole again for nothing? I'll call you if something comes up. I'll be all right. Silence. Lawson sighs. He considers Bell for a long moment. Well, you look terrible. I had a rough night. Have a lot of those? You ever talk to someone? A little. I check in on you, you know. Most detectives with your years in would have been moved up to RHD a long time ago. Come on, Gil. Okay. Look, I don't know if this is your thing, but I do a Bible study on Wednesday night. Anytime you want to pop by. I know, but it's very low-key. No one's handling snakes. It's just... It's good not to be alone, you know? Think about it. Where did we meet? Interior bar, night, 17 years ago. A younger, confident Bell, late 20s, sits across from Chris, an FBI agent. He's young too, but a few years older than her. A bar in Hammett, 2002, where'd you grow up? All over. Mostly Las Cruces. What bar? Tappies. Why Las Cruces? Dad got transferred to White Sands. He left, we stayed. Why were you always at Tappies? Bartender gave me a break on drinks. Where'd you go to school? Centennial High. Expelled, got my GED. Did half a year at Doña Ana Community. Tossed for dealing. What's across the street from the bar? Car dealership. Their sign is this huge neon bear. What was the mascot at Centennial? What was the name of the bouncer? The one with the hair? Martin. How'd we meet? Marlin. Fuck. Fuck is right. They can check that. Marlin. Marlin. Okay. How'd we meet? We were both at the bar trying to order. A Dire Straits song came on the jukebox. You screamed, who put this shit on? I turned and confessed. No. We said Pink Floyd, Chris. Ah, fuck that. 
I like Dire Straits. Today's episode introduces a lot of new and vital elements to our discussion, namely the characters of Chris, played by Sebastian Stan, and Gil Lawson, played by returning Kasama favorite Toby Huss. Moreover, the use of flashbacks and parallel timelines is inserted into the narrative for the first time, which is a huge part of the film's overall structure, and that is truly only scratching the surface. So let's get into it. In these pages of the script, we continue to get a feel of Belle's professional world through her federal connections and the use of a few key terms at the FBI headquarters where she meets Gil Lawson. The exact definition of these acronyms and phrases, for example, RHD or Robbery Homicide Division, isn't terribly important because like any story engaging with a given vocation, the mere presence of this language suggests that the characters are professionals who are actively engaged in their environment, which in this case is law enforcement, of course. In other words, Bell and Lawson are good at their jobs, at least in the narrow sense that they know how to bend that legal environment, both its advantages and its limitations, to their will. Lawson even hints at happily accepting a slap on the wrist should his assistance towards Aaron get him in trouble. The context clues that create space for character moments are what lingers during Bell's FBI visit. I think about how Lawson helped Aaron with warmth and ease, how he confirms the ID of the stained money and disarmingly offers Aaron an invitation to his Bible study. Not what RHD means, not what the acronyms are. Indeed, the inclusion of accurate jargon simply creates an immersive effect for the audience without alienating them. This is often indicative of good research on the part of the filmmakers. Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi did their homework, and it shows, particularly for anyone interested enough in checking their work. And for the record, RHD is responsible for investigating select homicides bank robberies, serial robberies, extortions, sexual assaults, human trafficking, kidnapping, and incidents that result in injury or death to an officer, not to mention threats against officers. But if I'm going to be so bold as to talk about the importance of accurate federal and police jargon, that opens up the door to a much bigger and much more sensitive topic, one that will likely have to be examined across various episodes, if not the entire series, as Belle's behavior becomes more erratic and extreme, from her unhinged, animalistic outbursts to her quiet, practiced lies. And that is the topic of copaganda, a colloquial term that refers to any media, be it film, TV, or something else, that implicitly or explicitly advocates, endorses, or celebrates the need for police officers and law enforcement. Destroyer, of course, came out in 2018, but in the few short years since then, public awareness of cops' detriment to society, most notably to the black, POC, and LGBTQ communities, 
has only increased. To return for a second to the previous subject, Lawson's assistance towards Belle, it's kind of a throwaway moment, at least at first glance. Yet it's telling in terms of one, his feelings for Aaron, his personal feelings, reinforced by his insistence she come to his Bible study, and two, the way law enforcement can shrug off a potential reprimand because there will be no lasting, serious consequences. While Lawson isn't problematic in the way that, say, Derek Chauvin is, his actions are still quietly indicative of the system that protects people in his profession. He and so many others can afford to skirt the rules, if not outright break them, with no repercussions. Let me be extremely frank. I think that police should be defunded in the United States. Will that happen in my lifetime? Sadly, I'm not counting on it. Police in the U.S. are a fundamentally sick institution with roots in American slavery. Qualified immunity too often protects the killers and criminals and corrupt cops inside of it that are masquerading as servants of the public. Much smarter people than myself have outlined in detail the benefits of divesting from police. Defunding the police would at least theoretically create infrastructure that ultimately comes back to investing in people, in health, and in education rather than militarized police departments, and robot dogs, and tanks. The documentary Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops is perhaps the one piece of media that has genuinely given me hope in regards to a forward-thinking police force. The film not only shows the power of engaging with homeless people and criminals with humanity rather than weaponry, what a concept, <laughs> but displays an all-too-rare portrait of an officer actually engaging with their childhood and adult trauma through therapy. I found it deeply moving, but I also found it disappointing that the titular officers merely represent a small experimental division rather than the baseline norm. Aaron Bell, of course, leans heavily on blunt brute force rather than tact and de-escalation, unless it serves her ultimate murderous goal. But how commendable is stealth and manipulation, especially when it's in the service of homicide? Without getting too ahead of ourselves, Bell is unrepentant in using her considerable resources as a detective to fulfill her very personal vendetta, one that she knows could get her in deep trouble, both mortal and professional. Yet this kind of rule-breaking with impunity behavior is tragically realistic, which is why I bring it up. But the question stands, is Destroyer an example of quote-unquote copaganda? I think it's safe to say that the core creative group of Hay, Manfredi, and Kasama do not particularly like police officers, but not being a fan of cops, calling for their defunding, calling for their abolishment, and producing a cop-centric feature film are all different individual things on a large political spectrum, and all of them can easily overlap. The utility of police and our belief of what they offer, good or bad, is a space where there's no real neutral ground. With that said, the filmmakers obviously appreciate, like so many storytellers that come before them, how the job 
of being a police officer is an exceptional lens through which to examine morality and humanity, or lack thereof. But it comes with real power and genuine responsibility. Whether Destroyer's depiction of law enforcement is ultimately positive, negative, or somewhere in between is something we likely won't be able to answer definitively until the end of the series, if at all. But it's important for me to start the conversation now. Speaking of ongoing conversations, it's going to be pervasively awkward for me to talk about Destroyer's feminist leanings for all the obvious reasons I outlined in the first episode, but that's the challenge I gave myself, and I'm committing to it. So today, in that spirit, I'd like to discuss that subject through the lens of a recent crop of female-starring action movies, namely Netflix's Kate, Netflix's Gunpowder Milkshake, and Prime Video's Jolt. There's even Martin Campbell's The Protégé, as well as The 355. The list goes on. Writer Emma Stefanski tackles this in her sometimes hilarious, often insightful article for Thrillist, titled, I had a girl boss action movie night, and it turned my brain to goo. <laughs> this passage in particular feels like a good summary of her perspective. I really like all of these actresses, and from what I've seen of the promotional material for these movies, they seem like great fun to make. And who am I to stop the girls from bossing all over the back alleys of Tokyo or New York or Berlin? But... For a subgenre desperate to be subversive, it still feels paint by numbers. In other words, it's not that these candy-colored, over-the-top, or John Wick-influenced approaches have no place, or even that this subgenre is oversaturated. Rather, as Stefanski suggests, I'd say there's a strange dishonesty going on in each of these movies, in the sense that they're gently lying, intentionally or not, about the reality of their nature. They're sincerely pro-woman, yes, but just because they're pro-woman doesn't mean they have any real insight or depth to offer beyond that. In many ways, they're catering to the exact simplicity that Karin Kasama aims to avoid in Destroyer. Furthermore, when a film is as hyper-stylized as some of these aforementioned girlboss movies are, it's difficult not to wonder if that stylization is actively hiding the shallow point of view behind it. I'm not trying to pick a fight with any of these movies, by the way. Movies are more than allowed to be shallow and fun and silly. And don't let me or anyone else get in the way of you liking them. I need silly, shallow movies in my life too. Desperately. But my hope is that by mentioning Gunpowder Milkshake or Kate, I can better highlight how Destroyer threads the needle of developing its own voice and style without drowning audiences in it, or by drawing undue attention to it because it doesn't have anything real or meaningful to say. Granted, Destroyer isn't an action movie, but to reiterate, it more effectively backs up the feminist point of view that all these films have in common by going beyond mere caricature. So when male directors of female-fronted action pictures like Kate or Gunpowder Milkshake, they obfuscate that lack of depth, and that obfuscation can be more bothersome than the actual style or content of the movies themselves. Because once more, shallow movies are fine, over-the-top action movies are fine, 
Girl boss movies are fine. They all have their place. However, because our society is broadly asymmetrical and misogynistic, I think there's a tendency to overcompensate when it comes to making empowering female-led films, or at least female-starring films. Again, I don't think there's anything inherently bad about these feature films, but by virtue of them sanding off some of the less accessible and uncomfortable truths for something simpler, the end result can feel groan-worthy. It can feel disingenuous. In truth, women are just as flawed and complex as any other gender, even though they're measurably more oppressed than men. So when a glossy, corporate-owned action movie does the easy, simple thing, rather than the hard thing, it can be frustrating. As Julia Ducranu, director of Raw and Titan, brilliantly points out in this episode's opening guiding quote, she has no interest in morally sustaining her protagonist's wants or needs. She proves with Titan that she doesn't need to. What a deeply refreshing thought, especially in contrast to the movies just discussed. At the end of the day, that is what so many of these girl boss movies, especially the ones directed by men, which are the majority, are likely missing. I can only assume that most, if not all, of these filmmakers are afraid of alienating their mainstream audiences, so they embed their female assassins with a righteously indignant backstory to justify their carnage. That's okay. It's something we see all the time, and for fair reasons. Yet, a film like Titan, which won the Palme d'Or, the highest prize awarded at the Cannes Film Fest, is commendable for actually having the gumption to sidestep this cliché. It shares a key conviction with Destroyer and Kasama, which is that an emotionally, physically violent female protagonist, one that refuses to dampen their fury, is just as interesting, important, and indicative of the human experience as a female character that is plainly justified in their brutal actions, if not more so. By extension, directors like Durano and Kasama assert that female rage is actually more cathartic when it is connected to this truth, rather than distanced from it. Perhaps this is a key reason Destroyer could be classified as film noir, despite its sun-bleached aesthetics. Because Belle is a type of femme fatale, and that her unapologetically conniving traits are just that, an attribute that is never apologized for or half-heartedly meekly presented by the filmmakers. Her extra-legal tactics and raw emotion empower her to achieve her goals. Perhaps not unlike Linda Fiorentino's Bridget Gregory in The Last Seduction, another lead that occupies the evolution of the femme fatale archetype, Belle is a woman whose broad lack of consequences for her illegal actions actually subvert the norm, rather than pay lip service through slick fight choreography. She of course faces many obstacles, but the point is that the filmmakers never judge Belle's methods or feel the need to placate mainstream viewers with facile tactics or facile easy character motivations. However, while both Aaron Bell and Bridget Gregory outsmart each of their marks with a general lack of consequences, 
meaning they both achieve their ultimate goal or goals, Belle is easily the more tortured of the two. Bridget Gregory revels in her impunity, while Belle implicitly longs for the opposite, because at least that way she'd feel like she got what she deserved, assuaging her guilt in the process. Whereas Gregory claims and discards men as they suit her carnal, chess-like needs, Belle legitimately falls for one, perhaps mistakenly. And this is why Destroyer is a tragedy in many ways. It depicts a series of mistakes both good, like Aaron's daughter Shelby, and bad, like the botched bank robbery, that leave a trail of broken, dead, or dying amidst a doomed romance. I mentioned Romeo and Juliet in the last episode as an example of stating a story's ending at its start. Today, I'll cite it as possibly the most famous romantic tragedy in history. It of course set the template for death and heartbreak, played for maximum dramatic effect. While Destroyer might not have warring houses and a double suicide, among so many other things, I appreciate its variation on the doomed romance theme, specifically its portrayal of the heavy cost that succeeds the original tragedy itself, all of which begins with our introduction to the character of Chris. If Destroyer is a variation on a doomed romance, then on a more granular level, Aaron and Chris, their first scene together is a variation on a meet-cute, aka the scene usually in a romantic comedy where the story's main couple first meet, usually under comical circumstances. There's a lot I like about Chris and Aaron's first big scene. Most notable is the ineffable push-pull tension between Nicole Kidman and Sebastian Stan that creates the foundation for their ongoing chemistry, without which the movie might fall apart, or at least would not be nearly as effective. But on an almost meta level, I simply love how our introduction to them as a team, at first a professional one, and eventually a romantic one, is seeing them discuss their shared cover story. Not just their individual cover stories, but specifically the one regarding how they met. I'm not necessarily saying this is a deconstruction of a meet-cute, even as one that starts in media res or in the middle of things, which I also find refreshing. But if nothing else, it exists as an introduction within an introduction. We're introduced to their dual personas. This kind of layered storytelling is both efficient and thematically appropriate. That's because this fake story isn't in the movie just so the audience can see Chris and Aaron rehearse and then make eyes at each other suggestively. It stealthily informs their real story, foreshadowing how they will go on to lose themselves in their fabrications and the desert band of scoundrels that they're meant to infiltrate and not join. We learn more about their fake selves than their real ones because those are the versions the story is really going to show us. They're going to show that transformation, and this is the beginning of it. Chris and Aaron's variation on a meet-cute is a major narrative moment, and arguably a transition into the next act, because it's a point of no return for them both. As we'll see, this is likely the scene where, consciously or not, 
they choose to leave their previous selves behind in favor of the thrilling uncertainty of love and a life of being undercover, a life of unpredictability. But Chris and Aaron's meet-cute functions as more than just a character introduction. It acts as our first glimpse of Destroyer's use of flashback and parallel timelines. This is a critical piece of the film's alternating structure, one that switches between past and present tense at will, sometimes in nonverbal flickers and sometimes in extended revelations, but all of it radiating from Bell's fractured nucleus. Even the term linear, when used to describe a film's chronology, still occurs to me as a bit of a misnomer. That's because the very nature of efficient screen editing means that the story jumps to the next moment or scene in a way that accelerates the story. For example, we don't need to see an entire car ride play out in real time because it's implied by the cuts, by the edits, and is therefore redundant narratively unless the filmmakers are trying to say something specific about the excruciating nature, perhaps, of a car ride or anything else they might want to convey. Yet, most wouldn't consider these basic time jumps as flash-forwards. This is largely just considered the language of motion pictures. And while, yes, this monodirectional storytelling is still technically linear, it's almost always a fractured, folded, or imperfect line. With the exceptions perhaps being the subgenre of movies that create the illusion of one long, unbroken take. This might be splitting hairs, but as I mentioned last episode, Destroyer exploits the more conventional language of cinema, and the assumptions made by a cut or series of cuts. Therefore, today's pages are significant, because it's the first time the film obviously cuts to a flashback, thus further toying with the linearity we just discussed. Much of this is conveyed visually, primarily through the drastic differences in Belle's appearance, not to mention her voice and overall demeanor that's on display during her meeting with Chris. Gone is Belle's broken nose, cracked skin, and greasy mop of hair, not to mention her perpetual scowl in favor of a cautious, playful smile, even freckles. The contrast between these two versions of Aaron becomes heightened when Kasama and editor Plummy Tucker cut to an indelible medium close-up of Belle morosely sitting on a stoop, immediately following her implied reminiscence of Chris. It's a striking, brutal, and elegant transition. One that's aided by a clever needle drop related to Chris and Aaron's cover story. A song that speaks to Aaron's own betrayal and guilt. The same guilt that speaks to a larger web of sins that neither Aaron nor the filmmakers wish to condemn or judge. Instead, they aim to examine this tragic past and the person or people it's maimed. How we reconcile or ignore those cutting shards of trauma, loss, and memory is one of Destroyer's primary interests. Conventional wisdom frequently highlights how time can heal, but Kasama wants to show us how it can destroy. An Invitation to Destroyer 
is written, produced, and hosted by me, Jim Panola, and stars Eileen Anglin as Aaron Bell. Original score is by John Panola. Graphic design is by Joseph Panola. Additional artwork by Logan Riley and Piper Schauberg. And executive producer is John Panola. Our featured actors this episode are Jun Yoon as Lieutenant Oshima, Robert Wilde as Gil Lawson, and Chris Matthews as Chris. Additional voiceover is by Eleanor Alger. Follow us on Twitter at an invitation, no underscores, and follow us on Instagram at invitation to invitation. That's invitation, the number two invitation with no underscores. Special thanks to Phil Hay, Matt Manfredi, and Karin Kasama. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate and review an invitation to Destroyer on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's a small action that makes a big difference. Similarly, please spread the word if you enjoyed this episode and tell a friend about the show who you think might like it. And once more, I have a Patreon subscription page at patreon.com slash jimpanola. For just a few dollars a month, you can get a wealth of written and audio bonus content that includes but is not limited to early access, exclusive extended cuts, as well as the official companion podcast titled Ellipsis, where I chat about the movie with some very special guests and fans. Link is in the show notes. And on that note, extra special shout out to a few of my very generous Patreon patrons, Rupa Dasgupta, Joseph Panola, John Panola, and Jane Panola. I love you guys. You're all amazing. So once more, thank you. Until next time.